1: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated.
0: Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
1: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing suite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is
0: hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
1: Team Human is commercial-free and supported entirely by listeners. You can join the team by becoming a subscriber at teamhuman.fm. Gain access to our bonus content from the archive, such as conversations with Timothy Leary, Naomi Klein, Bruce Sterling, Harvey Picar, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, and many others. You also gain access to the Team Human Discord channel and special events in the Team Human High Fidelity Spatial Audio Lounge, including live salons with some of our guests and friends. Join listeners like Reed Sellers, Michael McCormick, Kristen Korovar, Robert Birdsell, and Ashley, and get all those benefits plus invitations to our live shows. Thanks for being on Team Human. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we dare to challenge the scripts, even the ones we think we agree with, and stay open to new truths, counterintuitive insights, and the possibility that we've really known the answers all along. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Co-founder and director of the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future, Nate Hoggins. A
0: chicken is renewable. Uh, An oak tree is renewable if you have an acorn. But renewable technology like solar panels and wind turbines and all the contraptions that go into them are no more renewable than a pickup truck
1: nate will be deconstructing some of our most deeply held beliefs about climate change and offering us a few dangerously easy and inexpensive ways to keep our species sustainably happy it's time to intervene on behalf of people i'm douglas rushkoff and we're all on team human i just did a uh panel online. and was actually run by a, a former student of mine, Heather Dewey Hagborg, who has been on this show at least once. And gosh, there were great people, Ricardo Dominguez and Bruce Sterling. And we were all talking about really the early internet. And we each had to share an image of the early internet or something that meant early internet to us. And I, I included an image of this thing called FidoNet. And I guess that's because, you know, before the internet, and I am that old to remember before the internet, before the internet, going online meant for me, it was calling my best friend Phil's computer from my computer. I'd take a phone handset. From what was called a landline, which we didn't call them landlines then—they were just phones—and I'd put it into this special cradle with these two rubber cups, one for the mouthpiece and another for the earpiece, and then I would manually dial the phone number on the phone, wait for his computer to pick up, and then like hit a key on my computer, like uh, it used to be like when you would send a fax. Although faxes, uh, if you remember faxes, and you remember this, so. There really wasn't a lot to do online. Phil had a few games on his computer that I would call into, and there was a little folder with my username on it that I could use to you know, check for messages or store a file in there. And everyone who had an account on Phil's computer could also access this bulletin board where we would have these conversations, a lot like the ones that are on Twitter or Facebook now, except it was only 12 people and it was slow and friendly and smart and nice and phil's parents eventually they got him a second phone line so two of us could call in at once and then chat live or even play a game with each other and with him all at the same time. But Phil, he had these bigger ideas. He used to go to these meetings with other computer people in the lobby of the Core building in Manhattan, where he found out about something called Fidonet. What Fidonet was, was basically this network of other computer users like Phil, each with a couple of phone lines and some decent software. So either during the school day or late at night when none of us was actually on Phil's system, his Computer would call the other ones on the network and get all sorts of other cool stuff and download games. And there were these conversations happening on those computers too, which he could then download and share with us when we called in. And then we could even make friends far away and send them messages by addressing them to whoever ran the hub in their little community, you know, to their fill. But the the network itself. The network was us. All the people with computers calling each other node to node. Each node was a gateway to more nodes and more machines and more people. There was no destination. There was just pathways as if the network were an extension of our nervous systems into this big collective one. We constituted the online universe. And this in itself suggested this new distributed model for society. So, for people like me, who grew up with this as our understanding of networking, today's internet, it seems like this weird thing. It's not like my opinions changed about networking. It's that networking turned into this other thing. Going online, now it generally means signing on to some corporate-owned platform, opening an app on a phone, or logging on to, at best, a university server. But the orientation, it's all wrong. It's all backwards. It's as if, we're here at home and the internet is this thing or place out there that we gain access to. Like we're consumers or viewers signing on to Amazon or Facebook or Google or YouTube and and, and submitting to their terms of service and accepting our roles as these paying guests in their world. And this this devolution of networking towards something more like TV, I think it may have finally run its course. I think it's time people rediscover something more local, peer-to-peer and open, like, like Tor networks or applied blockchains or mesh networks, those things that connect users to one another instead of to some big centralized, ultimately closed corporate proprietary system. And I've been, you've listened to me, I've been sick of the net for a while now. And and I watched, you know, Bo Burnham's show, his, his show Inside, which really does explain so much of what's wrong with the net. But that's really only because we've got into the habit of mistaking Twitter and the New York Times and Netflix and the App Store for networking. I got so caught up up in the shortcomings of these closed-ended services that have allowed myself to forget what the net really is. It's closer to a blog role or something than than a platform. It's a network of peers pinging and sharing laterally and openly instead of on a giant for-profit platform. Those closed-ended services, I mean, they should be free to exist, but they shouldn't define networking or dominate the way we set priorities in our discussions of open access or net neutrality and surveillance and domain governance. There's many of us waking up to the ways networking was redefined by those who want us to purchase our knowledge and experiences rather than simply to share them. So whether you join the the EFF or Free Software Foundation, World Wide Web Foundation, Free Internet Project, Internet Society's Community Networking Initiative, your local middle school computer lab, you know, there are ample opportunities to play along with the real net. So even if you don't check out the movement to retrieve technology and values of, of truly open networks, I encourage you at least to join me in thinking differently about networking. Most of us, we still are thinking about this backwards. We are not the users of their network. We are the network. I've been reading Nate Hoggins writing for years, mostly on the Post Carbon Institute website. And occasionally we email back and forth about one thing or another, but he finally released something of a masterwork, a three-hour video on YouTube called Earth and Humanity, Myth and Reality, that explains pretty much everything about how capitalism and climate remediation have dovetailed into this perfect storm of trying to spend our way out of a problem that really may require the opposite approach can we just do less? I certainly think so. I'm delighted, honored to bring you this conversation with Nate Hoggins. Let me start with the real specific and see if it fractals out from there. So my car breaks. It can't be used anymore. And now I got to get a new car. Should I get an electric car or is that whole thing just stupid? (laughs) You know, but I look at the carbon footprint of an electric car, whether or not you're sending African children down into mines to get the rare earth metals or nice union workers in Australia, you're still digging up the ground to find the molybdenum, the lithium, the strontium, the whoever, and you're making this big battery and then you're mailing it to China so they could stick it in a Tesla or a or a humidor or whatever it is and then ship it over here. And now I got my electric car and I plug it in and I get a special con Edison contract so I can be getting well, not genuinely wind solar energy, but it's kind of called wind solar, some transfer of money thing in the power plant. And I drive my electric car and I'm all happy and there's no zero bad and keep it around like 10, 12 years and then throw it away and take the battery and give it to Chinese children to bury deep in the ground where it's never heard from again. And that's good.
0: Well, (laughs) you you just kind of told part of the story better than I could tell it. I think the answer to your question is buying an electric car. Good depends on the boundaries of analysis. If we are able to keep everything else constant in our world and magically displace internal combustion engines with electric cars, yes, then it would be good.
1: Right. So if you've got I Dream of genie. my audience won't even know who that is, but let's say they did, and you got I Dream of genie, and she did that blink thing, and all the cars turned from gas cars to electric cars, then that's a better world in terms of pollution? Well, no, not really, because... (laughs) Yeah, this is a comp- – we could talk
0: a full hour on just right. this question.
1: It's a, it's a great – in it, you know what I mean? It's an accessible way to, to to begin talking about why doing stuff that we think is going to be so much better and focusing all our energy and getting AOC to go to Congress and get Biden to say we're going to do this, that maybe that's not the the full real thing that we should be spending all our time and effort on.
0: Well, I, I fully agree with that. That's why I want to know kind of why it doesn't work. An electric car in its production uses more fossil fuels than an internal combustion car. And the batteries, as you point out, are incredibly rare earth and lithium and, and energy intensive. And this happens in other countries. The hope is that the fuel itself, which is gasoline on our regular cars, um, which is both polluting and depleting because it's a finite resource, that if we replace transportation fuel with electricity, that then the future is is
1: greener. I want to ask one question though. you think gasoline is depleting. So there's not like organisms under the ground still turning into gasoline. Slowly. Okay.
0: So gasoline <laughs> is, no, you know what? I teach college and yeah. my freshmen come into my class, truly most of them believing that gasoline is dinosaur blood or some fact. That's what they like told
1: that. us. It's dinosaur or, or, or uh, plankton that turns into gasoline slowly. Well, under plankton the- is
0: correct. Pla- it is plankton. Okay. It's, it's phytoplankton from the ancient oceans that were photosynthetic And when they died, they went to the bottom of the ocean, and they were compressed by time and pressure and heat and millions of years, and they turned into gas and oil. So 99% of today's oil is found in areas that used to be ancient oceans. And this stuff is like, talk about a Tesla or an electric car battery, we're depleting Earth's battery. 10 million times faster than the Earth itself charged the battery.
1: Okay. So in other words, we're taking the gas faster than new plankton are dying and turning into gas. 10 million times faster, Douglas.
0: (laughs) 10 million (laughs) times faster. But but we don't notice that because since you and I have been alive, there's always been plenty. And there's been recessions and booms and the price goes up and down. But there's pretty much always been plenty. Gas in the tank. But this stuff... What it does for us, we take it for granted, but what it does for us is indistinguishable from magic on any human timescales. Because one barrel of oil, which currently costs $60 at the pump or barrel of oil in the public futures markets, does the equivalent of you or I working four and a half years digging ditches, hauling wheelbarrows hammering shingles, really anything that we do. So the, the work equivalent of one barrel of oil for $60 is four and a half years of our work. The market system doesn't care about that because all the market system cares about is how much it costs us to extract these ancient phytoplankton from the ground, which might be $50. And then they put their markup on it and they make a profit. So our economic system conflates the dollar value with the work value of the most important input to our economic system. So our culture uh, is energy blind. And this stuff, yes, there's lots of oil left. Uh, climate activists, including myself, might argue that, that there's too much over a, a decade, century-long time frame. But what's left is the source rock. We have, in America, have used more fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas together than any other country in the last 10 years, the last 30 years, the last 100 years since the dawn of time.
1: Right. And that's because we're driving around in cars that use gas. So let's call Elon Musk and buy some cars that don't use gas.
0: Yay. (laughs) I've never met Elon Musk. I think we're headed for an Earth Trek future and this whole let's colonize outer space as our savior to our climate and other problems kind of drives me nuts. But Tesla, without all the government tax credits and subsidies, would not be profitable. They're profitable only because of these electric car grants and such From from the government.
1: Right. But that's what government is for, to help do big projects to get us off evil oil and onto clean electricity.
0: Yeah, and and the government has done an amazing job. If you watched my Earth Day talk, I have a slide in there on an iPhone and how all the different components the technology of those were originated in DARPA or, or some subsidiary of the government. Apple compiled them all and put them together.
1: Right. Even Star Wars, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars. I mean, some of it was even yeah. the bad guys did good. Yeah. But the, the problem,
0: well, there's many problems, but we've been in, alive during this pretty much uninterrupted period of economic growth where the economy grows from one period to the next, which results in material well-being for lots more people. It enables more people because our food supply is also predicated on fossil carbon. And so we can't imagine a world that doesn't exist without economic growth. So what we're doing right now is we're saying, okay, we still, we're becoming aware that carbon is a problem for the oceans and the biosphere. We have to decarbonize our economies, but we also have to keep growing because the conversation would be completely untenable at political levels if they said, well, we have to shrink. We have to degrow our economies in order to solve climate change and some of these other problems. So these narratives out there that electric cars are going to save us and we're going to go net zero emissions, or we're going to go to outer space to get the resources that we've run out on Earth, are ones that are delusional, in my opinion, but they fit in the, in the intersection between what government people and business people can say. Let's imagine for the moment that we did have the Barbara Eden, I dream of Genie," uh, I blink, and we could replace all of our cars with electric vehicles. First of all, we live in a complex system where there's many, many different supply chains and international letters of credit and micro components imported from South Korea to to Dayton, Ohio and things like that. But one barrel of oil, only around 40% of it is gasoline. The other 60% is diesel fuel, heating oil, distillate, all the petroleum products that lead to uh, football helmets and condoms and tents and fishing poles and medicines, and all that other stuff comes from a barrel of oil. So if suddenly we don't need 40% of the gasoline part of the oil, what are we going to do? Just stop all those other products that are essential to the global system? What are we going to do with the 40% that's gasoline? Just flare it?
1: So it's a really complex problem. Taking just the car then and and including the production. If I have a listener who I mean I would say just get a bicycle, but assuming they or just get a job closer to your house or there's a lot of different things, but if they do need a car, is there sense in them buying a Prius or a Tesla or a something instead of buying just a little Ford gas car?
0: Well, again, it depends. If your listener is absolutely, totally concerned about the environment and sustainability and their footprint and the future, as opposed to kind of a socially posturing decision to market our our status and greenness or whatever, it's far better to carpool just two people in a car than to go from an ICE to an electric car, as one example. The future, if we are able to have 30%, 40%, 50% of our grid be solar and wind, then it starts to, during the lifetime of the car, be slightly more environmentally beneficial to, to buy an electric car. But the larger conversation here is also, we talk about human population and there's almost 8 billion humans on the planet, which means that the net births minus deaths is we have around 80 million new babies born every year and some people are very concerned about that but we have a 100 million 3000 pound vehicles that are born every year in the form of cars around the world so what is the goal for everyone to have a car for everyone who can afford it to have a car i think the problem is we're looking just one step ahead and we need to be looking two or three steps ahead. And, you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now is everyone going to be zipping around America in a George Jetson society and electric guitars, uh, uh, cars with some of them being autonomous. I think that's highly unlikely because right. of all the other pieces involved. And I would think that on balance, that would also be an environmental disaster.
1: So kind of metaphorically then the, the problem with me asking the question on, like, for the listener who's going to go out tomorrow and buy a car, should they buy a gas car or electric car? Is sort of like asking the addict who's going to inject something tomorrow. Should they use heroin or should they use morphine? And it's like, um, well... <laughs> neither
0: it it probably would the better metaphor would be sativa or indica but yeah the 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 metaphor is not too far off
1: both why choose (laughs) hybrid hybrid (laughs) (laughs) i guess my objective is less harm give us more time do less harm until someone figures out a better crazy solution but that's the other question GE and Monsanto and Elon Musk or someone comes up with a sun mirror super energy collider thing. Well,
0: the problem with with most of it, you know, that's that's another story. Most of those energy contraptions fall prey to what I call the tragedy of the energy investing commons, which is they're good to get IPOs and uh, get funding, but then 5 and 10 years later they end up not working out, and the government foots the bill for them, because most people in today's society look at the world with a money in, energy and technology out lens. Yeah. So we can create as much money as we need, and we invest it in this stuff that's in the physical world, and it looks like it works on paper, but the reality is, is in the the natural world and in the human world, we use energy and materials to invest into something, and then we get energy and materials out. And so our entire enterprise, which right now, if you think about one human being, has the energy uh, of our bodies of around a hundred watts, which is the same as a hundred watt light bulb that's running all the time. That's how much we use. The average American uses a hundred of those. A hundred, a hundred watt light bulbs that are turned on 24 seven. And that's around four times the global average. So the whole world, the whole human enterprise, 7.8 billion of us use 170 billion 100 watt light bulbs. So it's 17 trillion terawatts. And my view, and this is a conversation that very few people are having is we're not trying to figure out how to switch that 17 terawatts from bad energy to good. We're going to have to figure out how to live on 12 or 10 or nine or seven terawatts as a global society instead of 17. And so far, Douglas, scaling renewables has added to the more complex, bigger mousetrap. In 2019, the amount of global electricity demand alone in one year, from 2018 to 2019, that amount of energy demand increase was more than all the solar panel photovoltaic energy ever produced by mankind. Solar and wind are cleaner, but we're not getting rid of the other stuff. We're just adding to the larger
1: system. Right. There's two kinds of problems that you're talking about here. One is like the kind of the traffic jam problem that, oh, there's too many cars trying to get over the bridge. Let's just make more lanes, Hmm. which just leads to more traffic, right? More cars, more lanes where where the smarter thing might be, you know, there's too much traffic. Let's take away a lane. You know, it might be the smarter, smarter solution to that, to too much traffic. Well, if you take away a lane, then more people will bike and walk. Right. They're going to have to do something else. You disincentivize it rather than, oh, let's just give them more. So there's that. More energy. So here, now you can do this in addition to all the stuff you've been doing. Now you can put, and I hear it so much. Well, we're doing all this new stuff, but we put up solar panels. So it's taking care. We got a swimming pool and it's heated, but we use solar panels to heat it. It's like, we're not using our solar panels to heat the house. Well, that's already heated with the furnace. You know, it's like,
0: that oh. Is a, that is a perfect analogy. That's exactly right. what's going on is we're trying to continue lifestyles like kings and queens of old by just swapping out some bad energy with some right. cleaner energy.
1: But the second problem that you're alluding to, though, is then the also – the energy of transition. So it's like, if England decided we're going to go completely to electric cars, that the amount of energy and resources and rare earth metals that would have to be dug out equals like the more than the entire amount that we've like ever dug out just to do that thing. So where does all that new energy and all that new stuff come from? The transition cost is just colossal and to get a a really only a very small payback and we're using more of that payback already because oh now we have free I could just drive wherever I want so we 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 end up twice as bad not just once bad but in a second way we end up bad yeah and the other thing you're alluding to and this is the the other part and as a former Wall Street person you could help with this is this idea that all those Solutions that we come up with, and I see this a lot with the tech bros and all of their stuff too for wellness apps and all that. It's like all of the solutions for social media are fine as long as we can still make a billion dollars off them. (laughs) So it's like there's this World Economic Forum great reset concept now, which is sort of like Green New Deal for capitalists, which is like, don't worry we're going to include more stakeholders and make even more money doing good than we were making doing bad. And I think that kind of doesn't really work because it's the more is sort of the problem here.
0: Yes. The more is the the culprit here. And you're a student of anthropology and, and human history for 290,000 years of our species history. There really wasn't a concept of more. We had enough because all of our caloric consumption was in our mouths, in our bodies. We would, have, we would hunt and gather. We didn't have stuff. Right. We didn't carry around stuff across the savanna in Tanzania until the agricultural revolution when uh, 10,000 years ago or so, we started farming, started gaining surplus and then also sometimes crops failed, and so people started to have a scarcity mindset, and then the hierarchies started and all that.
1: Yeah, it's in the Bible. Seven years of feast, seven years of famine, right. pharaoh, slaves, pyramids, the whole thing. But the concept of more now
0: is a lion can only eat two gazelles, and the third will get stuck in its throat. Right. A deer can only grow antlers so large in nature, and the antlers will get so big it'll fall over. But in the human system, we don't have those negative feedbacks. We actually have positive feedbacks in our modern culture to more consumption. I used to manage money for billionaires, Douglas, at Solomon Brothers on Wall Street. And they said, as soon as I get to a billion, I'm quitting. But a few years later, they got to a billion. Their friends had gotten more and they're like okay i'm just going to you know c- continue to invest here see here's the problem is our brains are seeking neurotransmitters and the flows of feeling successful and respected and adventurous and all the plethora of experiences we get during the day a flow based experience on a stock based world because there's only a finite amount of resources Out there. And so our cultural metric right now is pecuniary success, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Kardashians. Do I have my fishing boat? Is is it as good as my neighbors? And this is really tragic, but it's also good news in a way because we really don't need all this stuff that we currently think we need to be happy and lead meaningful lives. But our culture is, is sending us in that direction. And the things you're talking about with Elon Musk and and gadgets and different technology is, is really not helping.
1: I mean, one answer would have been for like, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and those guys not to be friends with other billionaires, right? Because then they wouldn't like, oh, I only got a G4 and he's got a G five. Just be friends with like people poorer than you.
0: That, that that's exactly <laughs> what I tell my students. Not necessarily poorer, <laughs> but but you we compare ourselves, you know, would you rather graduate and make eighty thousand dollars when all of your best friends are making a hundred thousand dollars? Or would you rather graduate and make $50,000 when all of your friends are making $40,000? And they really think that through. And most of them would prefer to make $50,000. And many other examples like that. We compare ourselves on a relative basis to others When on an absolute basis, most of us are richer than kings and queens of old in a material perspective. I live in rural Wisconsin. A lot of my friends are farmers and and factory workers. And so I, I feel quite well off. But if I was still in New York City, I would feel like a pauper. This is a real core behavioral driver, I think, of our species.
1: Right. We get to a certain lifestyle, right? So I'm I'm near Yonkers, but I'm in Westchester and got a house and I got to pay this and I got to pay that. And now I feel relatively unstable because I need to be doing three or four different jobs to maintain this, whatever, this uh Lifestyle, I guess, or this amount of expenses. Whereas, if I moved to God knew, you know, Amarillo, Texas, and lived in a forty thousand dollars house, which would probably be bigger <laughs> than my right. house, I could probably work like six hours a week, you know, and be fine.
0: That's exactly right, and I actually think COVID has, um, without the academic backdrop that you and I research, COVID has made a lot more people acutely aware of that dynamic. Working from home, making less money, quality of life increased a little bit because I don't have the commute. And so, the other thing that COVID did, I think it woke a lot more people up to the fact that the stock market is not a true metric of how well we're doing as a society or as a world. Because stock markets are making all time highs now because of the response to the pandemic, all this. $7 7 trillion dollars in stimulus and all the federal reserve guarantees and all that so that the financial world is a wash in liquidity but the real world is there's still tens of millions of people who are really suffering and a lot of other people who their biggest bills are are their medical bills and you and I, you know, we're better off than the average, but still in this society, you want to feel secure and safe for a, ro- a rainy day in case you get sick and you get like a hundred thousand dollar medical bill and and all that. So that is part of the downward causation of the market system. We have this belief that the billionaires and politicians are screwing us and just going on some secret path. And I don't think that's true. Some of them think they are. Some of the billionaires think they are. Oh yeah. Some of them think they are, but I know high level politicians and billionaires. And for the most part, they're as scared and confused about the future as you and I are. They see these trends unfolding and they don't know what to do. All of our decisions right now If, for instance, the Biden administration wanted to do the right things for the next 10 or 20 years, the things that would truly help our nation, those things would all require short-term pain for our society. And therefore, the more people that are involved in hearing about those plans, the more they're going to get shot down. So that's the problem is we're probably going to need less stuff. We're going to have to pay more for the main input. That's one of the projects I'm working on. It's called untax.org is for generations. We've paid a fraction of what we should have been paying for the non-renewable inputs into our economy. And maybe if we taxed them and then removed the tax on human labor, 95% of our taxes right now come from taxing people. If we remove the tax on humans and added the tax at the the mine mouth at the source of non renewable material and energy extraction. What would happen is that this iPhone here would cost three or four times as much. So people would conserve. They would treat it better. They would not. Everyone would have one. But if you make fifty thousand dollars a year, you get to keep all fifty thousand, and you get to choose what to spend it on. And the idea is that such a thing would encourage both innovation, it would encourage the technology that would be more commensurate with a slightly or moderately more resource-contrained future, but it would also encourage conservation, which we have very little of these days.
1: That tax would have to be global, really. I mean, in a sense, because we're taking out of the the global resource commons. Optimally,
0: it would have to be global, but it wouldn't have to be to be effective because you could do cross-border taxes that if we import things from a country that doesn't have the tax, then you just add the tax at the border. For climate change and other things like that to be effective, yes, such a thing would have to be global. And I think it's very unlikely, but I think just talking about it, how many people in the climate community, and many of them are my friends, really understand how fossil carbon and hydrocarbons underpin our lifestyles and that keeping them in the ground has massive implications for our consumption, our population, our economies. But there is this myth that we just plug and play. We get out with the bad fuel and in with the good. And you know, as you alluded to at the beginning of this, it's, it's not that simple at all.
1: Well, that's supposed to be the Green New Deal, though, you know, that we get jobs for everybody converting over and we make all these solar panels. But, you know, I talk to people who have solar panels and it seems that after like 10 or 11 years, they like have to get new solar panels and then they have to find somewhere to put the old solar panels. And it's like, oh, my God, we're back where we started again. For the record, I'm pro-renewable,
0: but what I'm very against is the conversation that we can use renewables to power this civilization the way it looks like now. Mm. And you're absolutely right. The standard length of solar panels is ostensibly 20 or 25 years, but sometimes they do fail after 10 or 15 years. And then we got to build them again. So to call them renewables is a misnomer. A chicken is renewable. Uh, an oak tree is renewable if you have an acorn. But renewable technology like solar panels and wind turbines and all the contraptions that go into them are no more renewable than a pickup truck or a computer. We have to have a complex supply chain. As you point out, we have to have child labor in Africa and Bolivia to get the the mines for the heavy metals and things that go into the batteries and, and the, the thing that I worry about is with the renewable narratives, the Green New Deal narratives, is if society needs to go to a, a, a transition place, if we do this Green New Deal, are we just wasting some of our remaining seed corn to extend this energy and material hungry superorganism for another 20 years? And then we're in a worse place. So the Green New Deal is just keeping everything in society the same, NASCAR and all the supernormal stimuli, smorgasbord of our current lives, without planning for a different, more benign cultural
1: existence in the next 50 years. And the the more benign cultural existence that you're talking about is wait. I mean, as I look at it, it's way easier to get to. We talk about it. We change some of our behaviors. We tell different stories to our kids. I mean, it's it's not a hardware upgrade. It's not even software upgrade. It's just a content. Yeah. It's a cultural content shift, which seems so easy to just say, okay, Thursday night, let's everybody play cards. Okay, well, why? Because we're not going to drive anywhere Thursday nights. We're just going to play cards as a society. All right, let's try that. And And it's like, all of a sudden there's like a zillion billion less kilowatts of Gaga spent, you know, little stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I I fully agree with you there. About 10 years ago, I did a podcast with a woman who uh, lived in a small town in Louisiana that was hit hard by Katrina or Rita. I, I forgot which hurricane, but they lost power for three weeks. And she said the first three days were horrific. And then after that, there was this, really amazing transformation in their community that everyone kind of banded together and they lit candles and they played cards on their front porch and they went to bed at night because they had no electricity. They couldn't stay up doing things. And she said the social capital that emerged from that situation was phenomenal. She said things started to smell in a couple of weeks. So so there's that. But the point is, you're right. We are so distracted by this 24-7 stimulation that we're forgetting what it means to be human. Talk about team human. The best things in life after our basic needs are met are free. The best things in life, if you think about your 10 best experiences you've ever had, they were either in nature or with some close friends or family or loved ones that you have expending time together. It wasn't some technological experience. And I think a lot of us deep down recognize that but we don't give us ourselves enough time and and create the discipline to make thursday night let's play cards night. you know, unfortunately, we are a steep discount rated biological creature. We are in many ways addicted to the present. We care more about today than next mm. thursday and more about next thursday than a year from next thursday. And we make all these great plans to change our behaviors, to eat less meat, to floss, to exercise, to save the environment tomorrow. I'm going to start tomorrow and then today becomes tomorrow and we put it off. So I don't think our culture, Douglas, is going to really change until we have to. But in the meantime, what people like you and I can do is start putting a breadcrumb trail towards different behaviors that are, are going to serve us well in the future. And it's really hard, but we need pilots and we need more people kind of living these different futures now and experimenting. And it is already happening organically. But I, I think we often forget that, oh my gosh, we have energy depletion and things are going to get tougher and our economy is going to get smaller. We are so unbelievably rich relative to our, our ancestors and most of our descendants that, you know, we could cut our consumption in half, and as long as it was managed, it, it could be even a better future once we assemble all the, uh, the different things that are going to happen in the meantime.
1: Well, right. I mean, you look at the amount of energy, obviously, that a nice, unhappy suburbanite in a McMansion spends – and it's incredible, you know, with the giant ceilings and the vaulted this and the amount of air conditioning and lawn care and all that that you have to do. And whenever you see in a, you know, in a movie, a uh, solar punk happy future, it's always, you know, Picard is in a freaking shack in, you know, in, <laughs> in Paris or something, you know, or the, the integration with nature, what people see as the you know, as the future is so, is so much happier. I mean, I guess my, my question then is like, if we had the ear of the guy, what Klaus, whatever he is, at the World Economic Forum who came up with the Great Reset and all the guys at Davos are saying, okay, now this is what we will do. We will create the great circulatory future. And they let you or me go and speak at Davos about this. Then we have to tell them what? I would want to tell them growth is the problem and capitalism is fueling growth. But you would say, no, it's not capitalism is not the core issue here. It's not that our markets need to expand. It's that people want more stuff. Well, I
0: actually agree with you. Growth is the problem and capitalism requires growth. But all of that is predicated on the carbon pulse, which is this one time Earth bounty of – low entropy, highly dense fossil carbon transportable at room temperatures that's gradually but inexorably going away.
1: So in other words, there's this moment that we discovered how to get coal and then how to get oil out of the ground and burn it and stuff. And it's like, woo, party time! And it's going to go away. Yeah, and and
0: all of our economic theories and our institutions and our plans were – developed on the upslope of all those inventions. And so we just naturally assume that that will continue in the future. The, the short answer to your question is you or I telling this story could not tell it at Davos. We would not be invited because, and this gets to the Upton Sinclair quote from the jungle that you can't expect a man to understand something. And his job depends on him not understanding Davos is, you know, a happy talk where we can we can mention climate change, we can mention global inequality, we can mention all the problems with our current system, but to mention that economic growth might be over and we're going to have to, uh, you know, totally change our expectations and our institutions is not a conversation that we can have. So I think one thing we could be doing is what I'm terming advanced policy, which is to advise former politicians, former business leaders that don't have the social pressure of stating to millions of people what's going on, but they can be informed about interventions that might be necessary in the future and inventions, et cetera. So we're on a runaway train right now. And we can't talk to the conductor. It's going to run away until it runs out of fuel, and then we're going to have to respond. That's the metaphor that I see.
1: So if the thing crashes because it just doesn't work anymore and all the stuff that you and me and AOC have been saying is true, then I have some friends who think, well, good. Let it crash. You know, a bunch of us might die, but at least, you know, something will go on.
0: I mean, I'm a college teacher and I think a lot of my students, which are more liberal leaning, but also there are people on the conservative right, Steve Bannon and people like that, that are calling for, let's just crash the system because it's so flawed. We need to start over again from the book, the fourth turning and things like that. I think that's really biophysically naive. I think some of it has to do with spite because the more and more people that have left are left behind, they just don't care. They they want to feel better about their lives. And so crash the system. I don't care about these other things happening. Other people will come down to my level. I think that's part of it. But the other part is that we live in this complex interconnected system in the Fukushima earthquake, Ford in Detroit had to stop producing black trucks because the black dye was only made in Fukushima Daiichi Prefecture. And so they had to stop their supply chain. Right now we have from COVID, 90% of the active pharmaceutical ingredient inputs are made in India and in China. So we started to have drug shortages last year. We need to bend and not break, because break would be an absolute disaster in so many ways that I don't even want to describe. So we need to somehow manage an economic transition without crashing the system. I think the Great Reset is horribly naive and dangerous, the way that they're pitching it.
1: Well, it's as naive as uh, getting us to space. It's like, we couldn't even do a biosphere on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> They tried twice (laughs) and now Elon Musk is going to go
0: build one on Mars. How, How much of that is in our physiological psyche? We're clever apes, clever, but seldom wise. I mean, I love humans, but we are so dominated by, at least in our current society, maybe not always, and maybe we not always will be this way, but look at all the people that just are obsessed with climbing Mount Everest. Because they can, they conquered it. I think the outer space thing is the same sort of dynamic. We we have to try for those horizons when we don't even know the beauty and the treasure of the natural world on this planet yet. So I, I don't know the answer. I, I think we have to have a cultural awakening, and that starts with individuals having some sort of change in consciousness of what it means to consume and live as a citizen on the planet today.
1: And there's a basic physics problem in getting a whole bunch of people off the planet, right? Don't we run out of gas for the rocket ships or whatever we stick in there? They're not Teslas getting us to space.
0: I mean, the rocket ships, don't, they don't run on gas. It's like compressed oxygen, so it's really not fossil fuels. But the entire fossil fuel surplus that powers our civilization, we spend such a tiny fraction of our energy right now on energy – relative to past generations. So there was a a chart in my Earth Day talk that over the last seven centuries, it showed how much of societal surplus and by surplus, I mean, if a cheetah chases a gazelle, and one time gets it, you didn't expend a lot of energy. And the calories in the gazelle allow for that cheetah to do all kinds of other stuff. In nature, the energy is the currency of life and how much energy surplus we get versus how much we expend is our income. And the same thing in human society. So for the last seven centuries in the UK, we at one point spent 80% of our energy on energy to get our food and things. And gradually that went down and it hit a low in 1999. 1999, our society spent only 5% of our energy on getting refining, distributing energy to the rest of society, which meant that 95% of our energy could be spent on rockets and spaceships and libraries and hospitals and shopping malls. Well, now that's approaching 10%. We're spending 10% of our energy on the finding and refining and delivering of energy, meaning we only have 90% to allocate to these other things. That's going to head to 15% and 20% in the coming 50 years. And so the concept of energy surplus, what extra stuff can we do as a society? That's what the space program and all this exploration was, is because we were so rich, we could afford to dedicate all this complicated rocket technology and and such. So when you ask, you know, sure, we can send groups of five or 10 people into space because we have that amount of energy surplus. But some mass evacuation of Earth uh, with hundreds of thousands, let alone millions or billions of people is absolutely biophysically delusional, not to mention how many people actually would want to do that, not to mention that some people like Elon Musk and the late Stephen Hawking say, oh, we've got climate change coming. We have to escape to Mars over time because Earth's going to be uninhabitable. That's even more freaking delusional because in the worst post Armageddon nuclear war climate disaster, Earth would still be a freaking paradise next to
1: Mars. Right, because there's no air and stuff, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> very little. But then you even see. I mean, I, I saw Elon Musk was talking about how um, he's afraid of AI, right? Artificial intelligence going nuts and doing whatever. And he's like, "Oh, so that's another reason we have to go to Mars." And he's like, "What do you think's going to be? What do you think's going to be running the Mars Dome if not artificial intelligence? Uh, you know, uh, tracking and sent- using sensors on everything." It's like you don't. If you want to escape from technologies like AI, don't don't go off planet
0: <laughs> yeah, actually Douglas I think it's it's a religion there are a lot of religions that are theological Christianity Islam etc but there's a lot of religiosity in our brains that we become fanatical believers in something and right now economic growth is a religion but also this colonizing outer space if you see the um, the crowds that come to these, SpaceX things and, and Jeff Bezos talking about a trillion humans living in space sometime, there's like this ecstasy in their faces when they're hearing these stories. People really need rapture ideologies to feel better about themselves because they intuit how screwed up the world is right now. And they don't want to hear this biophysical truth about electric cars that you and I are talking about. They just want to have a destination that seems appealing and plausible that they want to go to. And okay, we're going to go to outer space. Wow, these billionaires are happily pursuing that. I can sign up for that. But it's just not a a plausible reality in my book.
1: I mean, there's also this thing that happens, not just with them, although I guess it's related, it's the kind of the what do I call them? The ayahuasca boys. It's like some wealthy guys will go down to South America and do a bunch of ayahuasca or go to Burning Man and have a really heavy trip and then come back and say, oh, I see now, you know, the relationship of humanity, we're killing the planet. And now we've got to do all these good things. And so they build a website or a new coin <laughs> token for something a new you know a new blockchain or ultimately they're get rich quick schemes off you know psychedelic realization but there's the on the one hand a beautiful willing new community of relatively wealthy high tech psychedelic dudes who do want to do the right thing But it's so hard to convince them that it involves going against every grain in their body to have a scrum and to sprint to this new discovery and scale it. To everyone, like Singularity University, on the one hand, those guys are so right. They want to help and fix the world and make it great. But then when you listen to them, they say they're looking for solutions that scale to at least a billion people. (laughs) Wait a minute.
0: Well, we're energy blind and we're also ecology blind. I mean, the good news is there are a lot of people that are starting to understand this human predicament writ large, but there's an overlay of the market. And our culture that we care about these things but the solutions have to be aligned with the market system and the market system it will only grow and we can't grow in a low carbon way if we got rid of fossil fuels which we can't but if we did we would still grow from a much lower level And so we have to imagine a future without growth, and that's really hard to do. Getting back to um, the psychedelics, though, you're absolutely right. I, I think evidence has shown that psychedelics do allow people to imagine and experience the collective more than the individual aspect of our biological heritage. I read somewhere that you got your start in the rave culture, which I don't really know what that means, but I went to one or two raves when I uh, was at Vermont up in Montreal. And psychological research has shown that rave music and that heavy beating of a drum and all that is another one of the ways that humanity can transcend the individual to the collective. And somehow our culture, Western culture, American culture specifically has really focused on individualism as like who we are. And it is part of who we are, but it's not all of who we are. And I think for most of our past, we've been much more of a collective, but our culture right now is advertising the opposite. And if you talk about doing things collectively, you're viewed as a communist or something like that. But that's really who we are for most of our existence.
1: Yeah. it's a, And it's a huge problem that all collectivism, all mutuality, mutualism is seen as some you know communist plot to make it so you can't have your hamburgers or something. And it's so not. But then I want to bring up one more sort of solution set. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jim Rutt and Daniel Schmachtenberg and the whole Game B, which is sort of this plan that they have for... I guess finally arriving at some kind of anarcho-syndicalist network of cottage industries that just everything's good. I mean, do you understand game B and should we play that? Should we be on board with that?
0: As far as game B, I mean, the way that I think of that is we need to head somewhere different than we're heading now, but the, the runaway train, which is the global superorganism is going so fast that we can't just peel off from it. We have to kind of envision and midwife our way to this transition before the train runs out of fuel, metaphorically. And so Game B is just a destination that's achievable and desirable, and we have to work towards it and start speaking the same language. The solutions are kind of simple. As a society, we're going to have to use less, but you can't sell less to people because of the, some of the reasons we discussed, but you can sell different.
1: Right. But you could optimize for other things and say, oh, look how hard you're working. Look how much money is taking the place of smiles, of of sex, of sunshine, of how, how many hours have you rolled around on the grass this week? Uh-oh, only two? You know- <laughs> <laughs> and get people
0: rolling around. Well, I think the key there is if you if you have that conversation with someone, it will make sense to them, but they're not getting any emotional cues that that's required. Until we get the emotional cues, we have to have pilots. We have to have people rolling around in the grass and having sex and smiling maybe all at once to be examples that people look at them. I want to be kind of like them. We need examples like that, and other things all around the country. And then you get two or three percent of the people that are living differently, and it's a little avant-garde and cool. And then it, it's like an Overton window of our cultural conversation. It doesn't seem as strange as measuring our success by how much money is in our bank and how big our house is. We measure our success by our experiences and peace and social capital and the networks of our relationships and how healthy our, our local ecosystems are and all those other things. But it's it's not just an academic discussion. We need to go out there and some people need to start living differently and acting as an examples is what I think.
1: And that's easier though than – I mean – If someone's going to listen to this kind of podcast and think, oh, I got to try to understand how the whole energy thing works and the number of years that are trapped in a piece of carbon from a thing. It's like, no, you actually, because that's a whole lot of work. I mean, it's good that some people know that, but most of us don't have to know that. We could do more. In other words, I could spend a whole lot of energy even learning about which form of carbon or lithium does what to whom so I can argue down Elon Musk, if I ever meet him, but I'm better off just taking more time engaged with people in friendly, local, non-energy consumptive ways.
0: I totally agree. I mean, you've, you've summarized my personal and professional problem is there's a trade-off between being accurate and being helpful. And <laughs> I've spent a whole lot of years of my life being accurate about our systemic science predicament describing the human situation But it's really quite simple. We've lived beyond our means for one or two generations and um, we've kind of thrown a party and it's almost morning and we need, some of us need to sober up and start living differently with probably less resources Once basic needs are met, the best things in life are free, and we need new examples of of that.
1: Right. And then there are these people, You know, some of these folks in the more Schmachtenberg camp that I often get annoyed with because they're always trying to codify and quantify, oh, the health thing and your your stoicism has led to this much more free time or that much more penis girth or whatever it is, (laughs) at least, you know what I mean? But what they're doing, though, is, is trying to give people evidence to do the thing that we're saying. So they don't have to have faith that life's going to be better. It's like, oh, no, no, no. If you breathe more, you'll actually get more of this or have more of that. In in some ways, they are helping us justify living a better life. Yeah, there's that. But what I do want to know, though, is you started as a guy who had answers for like billionaires, right? You told them whether to buy gold or stock or stuff. What was your moment of transition from that guy to this guy?
0: It was a bunch of things. One thing was I read the book Ishmael, Mm. which kind of opened my eyes that this isn't what humans necessarily need to be. (laughs) <laughs> Another thing that happened is I came across the work of Herman Daly in the late 90s, uh, writing about externalities in the natural world. Right. Another book I read in 2000 was Thomas Hartman's The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Uh-huh. And all those talking about that oil would deplete in in my lifetime. And all those things kind of planted seeds in my head. And then as I was managing money for these billionaires, I felt like a high paid used car salesman. I looked at these people and they were not happier or healthier than the clerks that were sitting next to me making 30 grand a year processing their trades. And so at a very young age, like 26 or 27, I realized that having a lot of money didn't make people healthier or happier necessarily. In fact, a lot of them were kind of miserable. And after several years, I was supposed to be managing their money and coming up with complex investment strategies. And I found I was reading books late at night about ecology and energy depletion and neuroscience. And I basically said, I'm alive at this very amazing and perilous time. How do I want to spend my time? Is it pitching these $10 million investment vehicles? So I make 10 grand commission and live in New York city, or is it, you know, having a conversation and educating young people, especially about our time. And that felt like a spiritual calling to me. And, you know, I wish I, in retrospect, (laughs) I wish I would have stuck it out a few more years. So I had some money in the bank and then I might be more effective than I am now, but it's a personal awareness of the time that we're alive. And so that, that all collectively kind of made me quit in 2001.
1: The interesting thing in that though, is, you know, you see the billionaires and that they're not happier or healthier necessarily, at least in the current situation, some of the folks I talk to say that, yeah, but the more millions I have, the more likely I'll be able to survive the coming disaster.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a natural feeling. It's like a squirrel putting away nuts for the winter, but there's no, there's no limit, right? There, there's not a limit to our exosomatic wand and how much digits we have in our bank. But once you have some money, the best things that to have are access to food and friends and relationships. I I still have some friends from wall street. I've parted ways with half of them, but some of them I still talk to and they ask exactly what you just said, but they don't have any skills or tools or friends that live in rural areas. And I, I think social capital in our communities and our networks of who we know, even if you don't know them well, I, I think those are going to be much more important in coming decades than than how many digits you have in the bank.
1: Yeah, I know this dude that's got—I don't know what you call it—not an estate, but a house or whatever—up in Arcata, you know, in uh, Northern California. And he finally went out there in the summer and it's like the whole thing had been raided by people and there's like people living in it and whatever. It's like, dude, you really think when you go to escape there because the shit has hit the fan, what gives you more of a claim over that property than the people who are on it right now?
0: (laughs) No, exactly right. I mean, that gets back to this bend versus break. We are a collective. We need to hold things together, figure out a new cultural destination and, and have that conversation and I, I think to just amass millions or billions while you can as an excess surplus is just, you know, uh, it, it makes sense from the current cultural uh, directives, but it's just a waste of intellect and, and direction. But a lot of these billionaires now are, are giving their money away towards pro-social futures. And so that surplus could be targeted towards really positive things. So I think to crucify billionaires is not what I'm trying to do here.
1: I know. And it could be a whole new, it's a whole new investment career for you. And I was going <laughs> back and showing them, here's how you should actually, here, Jeff Bezos, here's where you could put a hundred billion and actually do some good.
0: Well, I think we're approaching that conversation because then the other, the other part of that is spend down, right? Because we have all these foundations with hundreds of billions of dollars that expect that they invested in the year 2040 or 2050 or 2060, it will have continued to grow. And therefore what they're doing is they're spending the four or 5% of it on their projects. But in the futures that I see, we are creating more and more financial claims on reality than the energy and materials will allow. So at some point we have a recalibration of our claims versus our physical reality, and that's going to have wreak havoc on all of our financial markets. So spending down our endowments and the billionaire's excess capital on real pro-future projects that look two or three steps ahead is, I think, a really good idea. That would be something I would say at Davos.
1: All right. I'll book you for next February at Davos. So. <laughs> I'll send the email. But th- thanks for this. It helps me feel good about what we're doing here with Team Human, especially the last year or so. has been very culturally focused, a little bit less facts and exact processes for, oh, how do we start a biodiesel refinery in my backyard, but a lot more about what is the true pleasure of life. And if this show and this community serves serves a purpose of helping people kind of pivot towards less extractive, less growth-based, more fun-based, experiential roles for human beings and help sell that, for lack of a better word, to society, then we've done a good job.
0: Well, what you're doing, I think, is incredibly important. I'm a big fan. And had you not already grabbed the term team human, I would have taken it because that's exactly what we face now. We have arrived at a species-level conversation, the human species, And we're going to have to figure out ways as a team, metaphorically or not so much, to navigate through this. So keep up the good work.
1: Well, thank you, Nate. It's really a pleasure to have you here. I enjoyed it. I'm
0: happy to talk to you anytime, Douglas. Thanks for all your work.
1: Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Nate Hoggins. You can find out more about his work at energyandourfuture.org. You can find out more about Nate and all of our guests by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a paying supporter of the team. We'd appreciate that know who would appreciate that in particular our editor luke robert mason who is kept alive by your contributions and our producer josh Chapdelin. i'm douglas rushguff and you've been on team human our last best hope for peeps